came to speak to us. I don't remember what Rabbi Blau said at the time, but I remember the feeling in the base Medrash when he came. All these people lining up to say hello to him. I knew him from before because I went to MTA. So if you went to MTA and hang out alone in the base Medrash, you know Rabbi Blau. But like now, then there was this feeling of warmth when he came to the base Medrash, this feeling that he was everybody's best friend, this feeling that all these people, you know, we could all rely on him. Anybody who knew him from America when he came to Israel was like, you know, seeing your best friend again. And for a long time, Rabbi Blau was universally respected. And then, not that long ago, Rabbi Blau decided to take a stand on certain issues, um, abuse issues, things like that. And so he stopped being universally respected because when you take a controversial position, you know, some people stop. But the rest of the world to which I belong started loving him. And he went from universally respected to beloved by people like me because he took a stand at, I think, great personal risk to himself. And it won the day. Slowly, slowly, even this summer, once again, you know, his position is winning out. And, you know, now his position is so popular, people think it's not even courageous. But when it started, it was enormously courageous. So for all the reasons that I've always respected Rabbi Blau, and for all the reasons that he's come here for a hundred years to speak and to impress us, but now I, I feel even more strongly about it. So it's really a great, great personal honor for me and it's close for the yeshiva to Rabbi Blau talk and talk about whatever he wants. The <laughs> Chavah Gadol. I have a very warm feeling uh, to the Gush. Uh, two of my sons spent a number of years each here in the yeshiva. One of them only spent a shorter time, but they were all, they all learned there, and a few grandsons, and including one who invited me to speak now. So it shows how he's already taken over the yeshiva, can invite speakers. Alright, what I'd like to do is give it a, a short talk on the parasha and then open it up, speak a little bit about the, early, the first Rosh Hashivas of the Yeshiva, about the Rav, mainly open up the questions of anything you want to ask. Parsha's Balak is quite unusual because until the very end of the Sedra, there are no Jews involved. In fact, if you look in the Gemara in Baba Basra, that Yudal Ramid Beis, where the Gemara describes who authored the various Swaram in Tanakh, when it talks about Moshe Rabbeinu, it says he wrote the Torah on Parshish Bilo. I mean, Pashat Bilam is not part of the Torah. So you'll tell me, yes, it's part of the Torah, but Moshe Rabbeinu doesn't appear until the end. So he's writing about things that he didn't experience, which is all, but that's also true about all the safer Bereshus that took place before he was born. But the, the Gemara is obviously indicating that he's writing something down whose significance comes 
aside from his, from the regular Torah, is unusual, it's Parsha's Bilam. That's what the Parsha, what Bilam had to contribute. And that's why I want to talk about the personality and some of the issues involved in Bilam. Interestingly, in Pirkei Avos, when they want to make a comparison of Bilam to a corresponding figure who is similar and yet fundamentally different, it's not Bilam versus Moshe. It's Bilam Parakeh, it's Bilam versus Avram. Why Avram? Why do we contrast Bilam with Avram and not Bilam with Moshe Rabbein? And I think it's because Moshe Rabbeinu was Mechavah Torah. Moshe Rabbeinu had, where we have this Torah, Avinu, who was a person who came to a Kaddish Baruch Hu on his own, Kodemat in Torah, and in many of the years of his life, before we get into Brismillah, he was not given any independent mitzvot different than any other person, any other Ben Noach of his time. And he is contrasted with Bilam, who is a figure who has great spiritual abilities without having Torah. And then the contrast is what they did with their abilities. What their message for future generations. Because remember that the Barak focuses on my, the difference between Talmidah Shal Avram Avinu and Talmidah Shal Bilam HaRasha, even though they describe characteristics of Avram and Bilam which are transmitted to their Talmidah. The first striking part of the whole discussion about Bilam is this back and forth between Bilam saying, I can only do what a Baruch tells me to do, and Bilam trying to act on his own. And it really comes back to one of the most fundamental issues in all of religious life, and that's the question of Bechira Chavshis, the ability of people to make their own choices, <coughs> which is fundamental to having any notion of scharva onesh, a reward and punishment of any religious values. If I have no choice, so then I can't either be punished or rewarded. I did what I had to do. It's only because I have a choice in the notion of reward and punishment. And yet in this parish, it's again and again Bilam tells Balak, I can only say what Hashem tells me to say, even though it's clearly not what Balak hired him to do or wanted him to do. Right? It's, I, I, I don't have freedom to decide what to say. And yet, it's not quite so simple. We know that the Parsha ends not with Bilam going back to his land, but the incense of Paor. 
of the Jewish people behavior deteriorating about the Zara and fundamentally Gilead Arayos, where the women of Moab and Midian seduced the Jewish, the Israelites to immoral behavior. And though it's not mentioned in this week's parsha, you have to, it's not even mentioned in Pinchas, where Moshe Rabbeinu says the Jews have to destroy the Midianites because of what they did in Peor. But if we go all the way to Matos, two weeks from now, the Torah tells us how did this event happen? Because this was the advice of Bill and Harash. So what do we see in that? We see in that that Kaddish Baruch Hu did not fully take away the Bechira from Bilo. Even though he had to give the say what Kaddish Baruch Hu put into his mouth, he nevertheless, here of course in the most negative way, retained his own choices and he probably accomplished worse things for Kalei Yisrael despite saying all the beautiful nubuos that are we retain permanently in the Torah than if he would have listened to Balak and just said said these curses because even within the and the Chazal understood that even with the brachos you can see where he's going. What he praises is indicative of what weaknesses are potentially there. Matovo alacha Yaakov, but if they're not tovo alacha Yaakov, right? If there's something wrong in the tent, so then the blessing won't be fulfilled. So this balance between listening to the Dvar Hashem and retaining one's own ability to choose is a fundamental theme of this week's parsha. I won't say it fully solves the dilemma, but it certainly gives it a, a perspective and an insight. So we find that Bilam is a very important figure. Right? He has Again, Moshe writes the Torah and Sifra and Pasha's Bila. And he's contrasted with Avraham Avin. But interestingly, I said Nebuah, but the Torah never explicitly says that Bilam is a Navi. Right? Read the Pasha carefully, right? Or pay attention on Shabbos. Yes, Balak sends his messengers to Bilam. Bilam is a person who has some great powers, right? Kaddish Baruch talks to Bilam, but we never find the word Navi mentioned explicitly. He's never described explicitly as a Navi, but he takes for granted he's a Navi of the guy, right? But the Torah never says he's a Navi. Why is this important? 
because it reflects a basic machlokas between the Rambam and the Kuzari. A machlokas that I'm going to get to when I start talking about this yeshiva. If you look at the animamans of the Rambam, not as printed in the back of the Sidurim, or not as it mentioned, you know, paraphrasing Yiknal, when the Rambam talks about the article of faith that there is such a notion of Nebuah, the Rambam explicitly says does not restrict Nebuah to Bnei Yisra. The Rambam says uh, to be a Navi is a, a very exalted, very hard to reach that level, but it's theoretically possible for human beings to become Nebuah, and the Rambam talks about human beings, not about Jews. If you study the Sefer HaKuzari, you will know that this is one of the fundamental distinctions that Rabbi Yehuda Levi in the Kuzari makes between Jews and non-Jews. Jews can reach the level of Nevoah, non-Jews can't be intervened. Even going to be paradoxically problematic for the king of the Kuzari if they all convert because there are restrictions on what converts can do, because they're not born Jewish. A view, of course, which the Rambam rejects as well. So the very fact that in the parsha, Bilam seems to be a Navi, we talk about Nebuah, we treat it as such, but the Torah doesn't say that he's a Navi, allows for the view of Yudha Levi that, no, he's a a spiritual value, but it can't be a Navi. Only a Jew can be a Navi. Now, why am I bringing this particular thing up? The issue of Pechira and, and free will and determination is one of the most fundamental issues in, in, in Jewish thought, in religious thought, in philosophic thought throughout the generations. Because this issue plays a very important role in one of the difficult issues that face Israel as a Jewish state. And, and there's a, a very important role that was played in dealing with this. One, talk about taking courageous stands and being facing a lot of difficulty and controversy, who is taking it, somewhat in different terms, because they were very different people, by the two founding Russians, by Ramital and Rav Lichtenstein, at critical moments in Israeli history. The Kuzari, in one, the way it's, the Sefer is structured, structured as the king of the, of the Khazars has a dream, that he, his desires are, are positive, but his rasam, but somehow he doesn't, his actions aren't, don't carry it out. He decides he has to change. So he calls 
philosopher, a representative of Islam, of Christianity, which of course then means Catholicism. There were no Protestants yet, and of the Jews. Right? And in the end, he chooses Judaism. I will give away the secret. Right? So one of the powerful arguments that the Chacham, that wise men of the Jews, has against the Islam and Christianity is one of hypocrisy. Let's start with Christianity, where it's clearest. Christianity talks about a God of love. He says, what happens when the Christians take, take, took over a country? Most of the world was pagan. The Christians took over countries. What did they do to people who didn't accept Christianity? How did they treat them? Where was the love? Well, Islam, again, forced people to convert to Islam by the sword. If not, they killed the people. So where was all the beautiful love, freedom? Only if you agree with me, right? So the king of the Khazars, whose most of his questions to, uh, to the Chacham, sort of like the questions in the Platonic dialogue, the setup questions, right? Or say in sport analogy, they were, he threw him a softball, right? Easy to hit, right? So the KDK is asking one question, it's not so easy to answer. He says, fine, you've criticized and shown that there's hypocrisy in these other religions. But you, the Jews, never, you're not in charge of anything, right? Since you don't rule, you can claim you'll do, you do or not do anything because we have no examples one way or the other. How do we know that if the Jews have their own country and there's a non-Jewish minority, that they'll treat them any differently? Of course, it's an unanswerable question at the time because Jews didn't run any country in Europe. But it's not an unanswerable question now. For the first time in 2,000 years, we have a country, we're the majority, and the minority is non-Jewish. And the question is, how are we going to deal with this? Now, it's a complicated question, and I'm not interested in, in, in discussing politics. Certainly, I'm not an Israeli citizen, and I write the gay problem in Israeli politics, and you're not either, so not, not, not the place. But there's principles here, right? In the discussion of the state of Israel and the desire, certainly within the religious Zionist community, of creating a halachic state, even though it's obviously not the case at this point, but Rav Herzog, so when he was the first chief rabbi, when there was a state, and a bit beforehand, and beforehand, wrote a great deal on the issue of how to establish a state, a modern state based on halacha. Go to the library, there are volumes where he discusses all aspects of it. And one of the hardest parts he has to deal with is the rights of the non-Jewish minority in the Jewish state according to Allah. Right? And this is a complicated question. 
particularly complicated because we're not just talking about a minority, but a minority that we'd prefer being a majority in a non-Jewish state than being a minority in a Jewish state. And this comes, has come up many times. And there were critical moments where the founding Rosh Hashivas of this yeshiva took stands that were not popular and were principled in this issue, in aspects of this issue, which caused consequences in terms of losses of Talmudim and yeshiva unquestionably. One was involved essentially Ramital, the Raparim took a similar stand, but he was more, because he was the Israeli, and he was the real founder of the yeshiva, and he was a Talmud, he describes during the Second World War having with him a safe of Rav Kook when he was still a, a youngster in Hungary at the First Lebanese War. There was a terrible incident. No Jews were directly involved. Christian Lebanese entered a Palestinian camp and slaughtered two camps, Sabra Vashatila, and slaughtered many Palestinians. No Jews were directly involved. However, at that time, Israel had essentially won the war, and Israel was the Israeli army was pretty much in control of the situation, and there was suspicion that some people suspected what was going to happen and decided, oh, we'll look the other way. We're not doing anything. We're not hurting anybody. We'll look the other way. And it became very controversial in Israel. Huh? One side said, one group of non-Jews killed another group of non-Jews. Not a good thing, but it had nothing to do with us. And the people were that that the Palestinians were not our friends in the refugee camps anyway. And another group of people said, we have a moral responsibility. Even though, as I said, no Jew touched anybody. I'm not talking about fighting in a war. Right? The outspoken in that direction was Rav Amital. Rav Amital said that the fundamental obligation that we have as a Jewish state is to be a moral state. Create a Kiddush Hashem and not a Chirul Hashem. That is the most important thing about having our own state. And therefore, Anything that if we could have prevented this massacre, even if we didn't do it, it's a terrible thing. And we have to have a commission to investigate how it could have happened. And I assure you that many people were 
terribly unhappy with him for taking that position. But it's a question of principle. It's a question of seeing a Judaism not that doesn't understand the distinction between Jew and non-Jew, but sees a broader obligation to the world, a basic, a universal morality that exists besides the formal mitzvahs in the Torah, without getting into more complicated explanations. And it was, he was attacked, you know, because it was, he came from a certain world that didn't think that way. And he stood on principle. A number of years later, there was a terrible incident in Hebron when a, an originally American Jew went into the Maras Machpela with a rifle. Barak Goldstein and killed many, many Arabs there. And then he was killed by those who survived. And there was a whole controversy how to view this person. Right? And there was some Rabbanim who said he was, Hebron was a center, as it is still today, of Hamas, full of terrorists, and he was killed of being a Jew, done of Kiddush Hashem, even if his judgment was wrong. And they made a whole supporting things up. And Rabbaran publicly took it on. Took it on, and as you can find, the things I'm going to, by the way, are found in, found in books. All right? And Rabbaran took it on and said, absolutely not. Person goes and I killed a bunch of non-Jews. I don't know if they were nice people or terrible people. Irrelevant. He went in, they were in prayer in the mosque in the Maras Machpela. We can't celebrate him in any way. We can't show the slightest bit of support for him. And again, moral stand. Moral stand not just for Jews, but for dealing with non-Jews as well. And again, this was very controversial. Now, this was not the only issues that made this yeshiva unique, but courageous moral stance, the notion that with all our love of a fellow Jew and our love for Torah, we stand for a morality that often makes life harder for us. But that has to be what we, have, what we are. And we're both willing to pay a price for it. And it's left its mark on this yeshiva, even though it's many years later, certainly new Hanhala, new Talmidim, new issues, but this notion, 
and I'll tie it to both things I said, that in the end, you have to make choices. There's Bechir HaKashas. Even in difficult situations, you make your choices. Just like Lahav Bill. Bill made his choice, despite saying everything Kaddish told him to say, and leaving with the Matov who we say every morning, people make their choices and their consequences. Right? And two, in this debate, Jew, non-Jew, bend in the direction of caring about everybody. Bend in the direction of having a moral concern for the lives of people, people who are not only not Jewish, but not our friends. It doesn't matter. Right? And the notion of moral responsibility is that which marked both the Rosh Yeshivas and the atmosphere of this yeshiva, which is something that I think we should know about. I'm assuming that you know about it anyway, but I'm making it a bit more specific. I, I just want to add a little bit from the perspective of the non-Israeli Talmudim. But I know there are people here from uh, Australia and South Africa and England, but, but I'm going to talk a little bit about it from an American perspective. American boys came to Yeshiva, including my own sons. They came to Yeshiva to learn with Rabbanu. That was, that was the, the attraction, that was the motivation. Rabbanu Lichtenstein was an incredible Talmud Chacham, reflective of the Briska methodology, which he absorbed from his father from the Rav, which goes back to Rav Chaim. He even added his own aspect to it. There's a, there's a debate about what he added, how he added it. It's found in a volume of, of the Orthodox Forum that I happened to edit, even though the debate did not take place at the Orthodox Forum. And Rabbi Krumbein is still in the yeshiva and Rabbi Wolfish, who happens to be my cousin, but that's a separate, uh, that wasn't why I was included. Uh, but everybody agreed that he added his own component to the methodology, a particular way of presenting it, and he was the attraction for the Americans. Right? But I can tell you from my own uh, sons, they came to the yeshiva, they came to appreciate Rabbi Mital as well. Even though Rabbi Mital was not brisker, Rabbi Mital, it was such a difference. I still recall uh, in the early years, they would come to America, Rabbi Mital would be the guest of Hawaii for Shabbos. And they'd have Rabbi Malka, Matsu Shabbos, and Rabbi Mital would come. And uh, I went to the, to the uh, I went to the Malava Malka to take, uh, actually to take my grandfather's uh, father who was home for Shabbos from Yeshiva, to hear it. And someone asked Ravaran a question, and in his answer he quoted Matthew Arnold. Ravaran's knowledge of, his doctorate knowledge of English literature was extraordinary. And then the, Rabbi Mital turned and said, I never heard of uh, Matthew Arnold, but I know his story. 
And that was Rav Amitam, right? But in his story, he captured that which Rabbanon knew from other literary sources. It's an intuitive sense. He, most remarkably, I mean, they were both survivors. People don't know that Rabbanon was also a survivor, uh, but didn't face quite the same challenges in France that Rabbanon that did in Hungary. He came out of the war focused not on hating the enemy, though he certainly was aware of what the enemy was, but on we are different than the enemy, right? His answer to the Kuzari, to the question of the Kuzari is, when we have a country, it's going to be different. It's not going to be like anyone else. We will find a way to be as humane as we can with, the, with our own needs, security needs, to the non-Jewish minority. Right? And Rabarin, who is the great religious humanist, which is not popular in many circles anymore, was that from a different perspective. Okay, I took a, a little bit longer than I had thought, uh, I'm open to questions. I prefer relevant to what I spoke about, but I have accepted a long time ago when you open yourself up for questions, people can ask about anything. So, please. I know it's hard to ask the first question. So, okay, the second question. Can I, it's not a question. <laughs> I, I was in yeshiva during what that described. The quote from Prime Minister Begin, to which Zalami Khalil took offense, was exactly this. Goyim killed Goyim, and Jews are blamed. Zalami hung up a, a petak on the door of the, of the base medrash. On top it said, the makom she'yesh t'hilul Hashem ain kolpim kolot l'arav. And he explained why he disagreed with him and the Prime Minister. And he started a whole movement. You're right, I think it cost the yeshiva dearly in the years following, but it made it on how it was. Okay. Yes, I'm sorry if I don't know your name, so I don't no. call you by name. Uh, Ezra. <laughs> Ezra, okay. Hi. Um, so, uh, do you have, I, I heard you were in like the rough shear. Do you have any uh, reflections? Okay, <laughs> yes. Oh, good question. Okay. In two minutes, in a hundred words or less. Yeah, okay. I have a desire to be in the Rav Shir for many years. First, when I, originally, when I was a Talmud in Yeshiva, when I was a Shir from, for little more than, uh, about eight years, a little more than eight years, and then I worked for the Rav in Boston and went to the Shir that he gave for a few of us. And then when I came back to Yeshiva, I know the Mashkiach had sat in the Shir again, so it's a lot of years, uh, until the Rav Fushni stopped saying Shir. Um, first of all, if you read such things as the the Shurim Nezech Abra which were the Yorzai Shur. Let me explain what I mean by the Yorzai Shur. 
the Rav gave me a five-hour shear in Halach and Agada on the yard site of his father, Rav Moshe Salvation Gimel Shva. Right? And that was a public shear. The auditorium yeshiva was filled with people. Plus, given in Yiddish, that was the language. When I went to yeshiva, all the shiur and yeshiva were in Yiddish. Uh, it's a long time ago. People knew Yiddish then. Uh, and it was a tour de force. People would come from all over the world to hear, right? And it was two and a half hours worth of shear, and then two and a half hours of... When Agada to the Rav was always related to Halacha, Jewish philosophy, Jewish thought has to be rooted in Halacha, but it was in Ashkar, right? And it was a tremendous, incredible experience. And the shear, the next, the shear that we gave the day before was totally different. The goals were different, right? Sometimes an idea that the Rav said in the, in the Urzai shear that answered many, many questions that he built up for over an hour, he would mention in 30 seconds from the shear. Because the goal of the shear was to teach us how to learn, how to think, right? To the Rav, it was very important to ask the right question, to know what the issue was, right? When my oldest son was in the shear, in the last years of the Rav Shur, and he was old and sick and couldn't get it out, right? But two things stood out. He always asked the right questions. He always got to the, he always was focused on the, what was the key issue. Other questions are important questions, but you have to know what are the ideas. What's really involved in this, in this debate in the Gemara? Now, what are they arguing about? Yes, this is a question. What are they arguing about? And his commitment to learning was to think about something anew. He would struggle. He was an old man. And there were old Tamitim who would come to the Shia. And they want to remind him of how he answered the question earlier. And he would say, I'm not interested in what I said before. Repeating what I said before is not learning. It's a good thing, but it's not learning. Learning is to think about it now. Maybe I'll come up with the same answer. Maybe I'll come up with a different answer. He didn't say in so many words, but that was implied. You look at it or no. All the time. I was once asked what the Rav thought people should do in a Bikiyas say there. And I told him, he would tell them not to have one. Because what is it? Superficial learning is not learning. If you don't mean it, if you're not serious about it, just covering ground is, 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 not, is not meaningful. It should be on some, it may be, you know, learn everything with equal level of depth, but you have to learn it seriously. Otherwise, he would have not been happy with, with everybody learning that film. Certainly the way most people do it when they listen to a shear for half an hour and they got another day done, right? No, it would have to be, learning is meant to be serious. You have to be devoted to it. And it had to be, you had to be thinking all the time. You had to be working on it, trying to understand what was involved. 
he would berate us for not caring enough. So the Rav, if, if someone would ask the Rav a question and his idea didn't fit, he would drop it. Right? And if it happened that the last year of the week, early years it was twice a week, then it became three times a week, he would literally spend the whole time come back to give us the answer. And I, I call more than one occasion, he said, I don't know why I'm doing this. It was said for pedagogical, pedagogical purposes. You didn't spend the whole week worrying about it, right? The kasha didn't really bother you, right? You're happy I'm giving an answer, but you know, it's only a kasha. But I spent my whole week worrying about it, trying to figure it out. You should be doing the same. He didn't expect us to be as smart as he was, or to know as much as he but he expected us to care as much, right? The purpose of the shear was not only to tell this wonderful Torah, which he obviously did, but was to get to teach us how to learn. I mean, I had a personal experience, and that was uh, one day, the first year I was in the shear, the Rav decided he didn't like the way I read. He wasn't satisfied. So he decided to call on me every day, right? Which made everybody else in the shear extremely happy. Right? They were going to be called out. You know, I was going to be called every day. And this went on for a few months. And one day he said, now I'm satisfied. And I was never called on again all the rest of the years. Right? Never again. Because he had accomplished the goal. And the company got me to be... And, and, and reading wasn't a matter of my ivra as much. It was reading properly, understanding, you know, a basic, you know, how you read something can tell you whether you understand what's going on also. You know, uh, one of my unhappiness in yeshiva today is that Rebbeim no longer call on boys to read. I don't know what happens here in yeshiva. I can only speak about Mwayu. It's been a pet peeve of mine. You know, all the, all, 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 in the last number of years. It's passive. You listen to the Rebbe tell you the Shia and you take notes. We were, we were part of the process. We were all part of the learning process. Now, we didn't all get the same thing out of it. Different people, you know, we all have different minds, different aspects of people. One. Number two about the Rav is he separated. The Rav, as the philosopher, was not the Rav and Shia. The Shia was on the Gemara. The, the Shia was on learning. You couldn't get a sense of what the Rav thought about other things from the Shir at all. He gave talks. He, he, he even wrote some articles. The Rav wasn't big of writing articles. Most of his writing is posthumous. Uh, they collected stuff. You know, people commented how much he writes so much more now that he's no longer alive. But, uh, <laughs> the, the Rav gave talks on philosophic topics. Right? And in different kinds of talks. The, the Chamesh Drashot are very different structurally than something like the Lonely Man of Faith, which is again differently from the Isha Alacha. I'm talking about the structure of how they're written, right? the kind of writing. Right? Whoever is multi talented. Um, but in Shi, you wouldn't know anything. I think it was one day I got very excited. 
because I was a graduate student in mathematical logic. Right? And once the Rav commented off the cuff that halacha is not a two-value logic but accepts multi-value logic. And I was really excited. No one else in the class cared what was it because they hadn't studied logic. So they didn't know the difference between you know, a multi-value logic and a two uh, uh, logic of just, that just has two uh, possibilities of yes and no. Yes and no. But I got excited. But it was so rare. I, I still remember it because it was so rare. Because in Shia, there was, Shia was Shia. Right? And that's what you did in Shia. Which is why, for example, uh, people have commented, why is it that so many people who were, say they were Talmitim Rav came out so different? And the first answer is because the Rav didn't try to force his views on anybody. Intellectually, if you, you, you accepted it, you accepted it, but you could think on your own. That was a given. Right? I once had a long walk with the Rav and I was telling some ideas I had on women in Judaism issues, which have, obviously other people have had things to say also over the years. And uh, the Rav's comment to me was that you can say things as long as it's not contradicted by Makoros and it should be consistent with the figures in Tanakh. Besides that, you can say what you want to say, and it doesn't mean it's what he would have said. That's okay. You can say it. Right? Uh, and because since the Shia was only on Gemara, so the fact that the people who sat in the Shia have different attitudes and different things, well, that wasn't in the Shia anyway. He didn't discuss those things in Shia. They separated. The, I'll just add one component in terms of what, what the Rav meant. And it's important because in different periods of time, there are different issues that are, dominate society. Huh? So when I was a student in Yeshiva in the latter part of, when I first came in the latter part of the 1950s, and that era was the era of belief in science. Right? Science was the future, and the issue was whether Torah was comparable intellectually on the level of modern science. Right? So when you to go to your Shia and then to go to college classes and discover that you're the Murrabi, was smarter than all the professors, that was extremely significant, right? Because I was from the first generation where Jews really had an opportunity to go to university in the United States. The previous generation, most of them were immigrants who didn't have language skills. It was not even... You know, they go to university and suddenly this is, you know, an open and intellectual and we're, we're old-fashioned and primitive. The Rav's very being, his intellectual capacity, by itself was extremely, extremely significant. That alone had an enormous impact on the generation. Uh, more than one generation, obviously. We live now in a world that is more concerned about meaning and what it, what it says to me than it is with intellectual 
ideas. It's a very different world. So I'm not sure whether in this world, you know, the rub's impact would be exactly the same. The world is, the concerns are different, right? I, I mean, the rub occasionally quoted capitalistic sources, but mainly to do what he did with them, right? I, I still recall there was one fellow in Yeshiva who came, spent a year in America, came back, and we set up a chavrusa in Rav Cook, right? And he would tell me over things from Rav Cook, you know, that he had learned in America, and I would ask him questions based on logic and philosophy, and finally we, he decided you can't understand Rav Cook and Kutz Lawrence. And that was the, uh, that was the end of our, our, our discussion. Not that Rav Cook, you can understand Rav Cook. But that it's a different mentality, right? It's a very different world and a different mentality. By the way, Rav Amitav wasn't the only one in Sabra Mishatila. The Ravs, when asked questions about Israel, if we ask halachic questions, the Rav would answer, I'm not the Rav Harashi, the Rav Harashi Pasmans. Israel is on Pauskin. Even politically, he would rarely say anything. I mean, of course, you know, uh, you, I assume that you're familiar with his early, with the shear that apparently was originally apparently given in Yiddish that I don't remember, that came the basis for Kodi Dodi Dofek, which was a whole approach towards many things, including what Israel's meant to be amongst attitudes towards the Shoah and many other things as well. But Rav didn't get into specific things. At the Chamesh Derashot, he talks very much about educating, not legislating, uh, and teaching Torah, and that how to influence people in Israel. The one time he was adamant with at Sabra Shatila, he called the head of the religious honest party at the time, whatever name it had at that time, names changed over the, over, the, over, the de- over the decades, and said, either you vote in favor of an investigation, or I will publicly deny my association. It's the only time I know of anything. Like the same moral stamp. Except doing it for a Ramital, doing it here in a lone foot was much more courageous. Not taking away from the courage of the rock, but it was much more courageous and difficult to do here. Okay, yes? When positive and sexual morality, what could be an appropriate appropriate approach to determining what's morally correct? Some questions are so good I can't answer them. All right? The basis of our morality and, and, and is there a an ethic outside of halacha, so I suggest you read the Rabari's article, right? right? And then the whole notion of when something is and isn't halacha. You know, you have this whole notion, uh, I just, it's, it's not a full answer, it's not even a partial answer, just a little bit, uh, of the Fnim Meshur Sadin. But the Fnim Meshur Sadin in its own way is a din too. That, that it would seem to be a paradox, right? Is it a dinner or is it a flimmer for us at that? Huh? 
but it's but this a partial answer is din is very well defined, right? You look it up in the Shulchan Aruch. Let's assume there's not a machok. There's a psak. You do this. The Shnimah Shusadun doesn't lend itself always to specific psak. How far does it go? Extend it. It's a mentality. So it's rooted in halacha, but it's different. You know. Now. This whole question of independent ethics is many people have debated, but I suggest you read Baron's article. It gives you an assignment. Yes? Did the Rav give a public response to Sabra Chitiba? I knew about it, so I don't know if it was, you know, I certainly knew about it, and I knew that he, that he contacted uh, Dr. Brook, who was the head of the party. And, and took that stand. When he said it publicly, the rub is not into public announcements. There were a few times, in fact, the people are very conscious of the times that the rub take public stands and attack things because it was so unusual. Right? Because it was not his style and not his pattern. So when he did do it, you know, everybody said, oh, Meadow. I think there was usually a very specific reason. And most of the times he regretted going public. He was not a, he was not a, that kind of a person. Went publicly, you know, uh, you know, on, on stands that had any kind of political things. There was, for example, in the late 1960s, you know, there was a war in, that America is now called the Vietnamese War, many generations, years before you were born, and it was controversial, particularly controversial on the college campuses. And there were demonstrations and riots and whatnot, and a group of students in Hawaii wanted to leave class and demonstrate it was in, in the spring, and uh, the question was what they should do, and the Rosh Hashivas were up in arms about it, and so the, the, they sent to speak to the Rav, so the students were smart. They learned that the Rav had a soft spot for Maimonides graduates, right? Because they were from his school in Maimonides, and then the early years it was having day schools in these communities, which now you all take for granted was far from obvious at the time. So they sent this boy in, and I heard the story from him many years later. I was right. I was not in the at the time. I heard the story from the young man who wasn't so young when he told it to me, so question his memory by that. He said he went to see the Rav, and the Rav told him, you don't understand how terrible communism is. You live in America, I lived in, in, in Europe, I know how devastating it is, and he explained why he supported the war. Huh? And then said to him, but you don't have to listen to me. Right? If you, people feel strongly about it, you have a right to do it. And then he said, but I want you not to stop learning Torah, right? This is classic of the run, right? In a private conversation, he told him where he fell, and he, didn't, and he then turned to the young man and said, you heard what I said? You don't necessarily have to follow it, because I said it. Right? because you're entitled to think on your own. I know 
because I've had this happen in conversations. I've worked in the yeshiva, the mashkeik for the last 45 years, long time, right? Uh, and I've had gotten this discussion with different people over the years. And when boys come to me, with rare, rare exceptions, every rule has an exception, with rare, rare exceptions, I do not tell them what to do, right? I try to help them understand what the issues are, what the implications are as they understand them, but I'm a big believer in Bechira Hoshis, right? And when people would say to me, where did you get this weird notion? That's where Rebbeim are there for, to tell the Talmudim what to do, right? That's, we all know that. That's Tari should do, isn't he a Rebbeim? What kind of business is this? So I said, I learned them from my Rebbeim. They said, I made it up, right? But I'll tell you what happened to a, a good friend of mine, right? He got smicha with me, and he went to law school at night, right? And he finished smicha, and he finished law school. And he went to the Rav to ask him whether he should become a Rav or a lawyer. Right? He had to smicha, and he had a law degree. He went and he asked the Rav what he should do, and he came out very disappointed. Because the Rav refused to tell him. Right? The Rav refused to tell him that's the choice he had to make. But what he did get a notion was that the Rav felt, and I don't think, this is not a quote. This is my understanding, that this is, whatever we do in life, we're going to face challenges. Things aren't always going to go smoothly. And the rub felt that if someone made a choice based not on his own choice, because someone told him to do it, he's going to have a terrible time when the challenge comes, because he didn't choose to do it in the first place. But if a person made a decision, then he takes responsibility for the decision, he'll be able somehow to deal with the complications that invariably come, right? This is very much part of the Rav. By the way, some of the things I describe in the Rav are not consistent with Brist at all. I ask this course also to work for, to learn for a while, and then to work for in one of my earlier petitions for a Baron Salavechuk, who was also an exceptional person. Rabaran Salavechuk gave Shear, and then I would hear him speak 20 years later, and it would be word for word what he said 20 years before. Right? Not like the Rav that 20 years later the Shear could have been completely different. Rabaran Shear would remain exact, Shear would remain exactly the same. On the other hand, Rabaran did speak up on public issues, and believe it or not, he was anti the Vietnamese. The opposite of Rabaran. And with that, I think I'll conclude with, uh, with this with Rabaran, Lichtenstein, and Rabamitao. Rabaran was open all the time to think about things, but basically, Rabaran's positions didn't change. Despite the fact that he was, he looked at it new, but if you read Rabbi and you saw him 20 years later, 30 years later, his, his way he looked at things remained the same. Amitav would say that he didn't change, but he changed all the time. He really would reconsider his positions completely. Life is complex. Be well.